Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, let's finish the book of Song of Solomon. Sound like a plan? Let's pray. God, thank you and praise you for the day. Thank you for your love for us as we sang throughout worship. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, I love this family and that uh, we can have a good time together um, and that we can look at um, intimate things, um, things that you designed for certain relationships and not for other relationships, Lord. And um, Father, just teach us and mold us so that we can take these things into practical living, but also into our spiritual life as well, Father, for there's the relationship and the intimacy with you that is far greater than any intimacy we can experience on earth. So, Father, we just are so grateful for the way that you have made uh, available your love for us through Jesus Christ. We do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our time tonight. You would uh, instruct us through your word. Father, that you'd help me to rightly divide your word, that I would be an instrument in your hands. God, help us to leave this place more in love with you than when we came. I pray that our time together would be refreshing. Wednesday night needs to be refreshing, Lord. So I pray that you would uh, wash us and refresh us. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, we've been trying to glean from the book of Song of Solomon both the practical for uh, application for a proper Christian marriage whether you have been married or are currently married or planning on getting married or what have you, we can glean things to learn or learn things from this scripture in order to put toward that relationship. But that's not the only application we have in the Song of Solomon. There is the spiritual application, our relationship with Christ. As I said, when we started the book, this was Dwight Moody's favorite book. This was uh, Charles Spurgeon's favorite book. He, he did 90 sermons on the Song of Solomon. Uh, he, he just loved this book and never once talked about the practicality of a re- physical relationship between a man and his wife. He kept it entirely spiritual and focused on our relationship with Christ. And this book is really deep. I encouraged you as we began the book, and I want to encourage you as we close the book, The best way to study this book is on your own, just reading it, absorbing it, getting a a good commentary or two about it. uh, um, I heard, and I haven't read Ironside's commentary on Song of Solomon, but I've heard it's very, very good. I trust Joe Foch told me that he's uh, the Calvary Chapel Philadelphia pastor, and, and he would say that his is one of the best, and so if he can get a hold of that. Online, one of my favorite resources is Blue Letter Bible, uh, blueletterbible.com, and there's great commentaries on there, Matthew Henry and uh, David Guzik and, and what have you, and, and various teachings as well. So um, soak and ingest these scriptures on your own. And what we're going to see as, as we close the book tonight is really the relationship between the Shulamite, the woman, uh, Terza is what she has been called, don't know if that's her actual name or if it was a reference to her being like the city of Terza, uh, but we're going to see their, her relationship with her beloved, which was Solomon, now 
later on, some distance away from the, the initial marriage night, we're going to see some maturity here, some growth in their love. And, and I like that because it, marriage is not just a one-day event. We, we, we spend so much time planning for and preparing for the wedding prior to the wedding, but we don't spend a whole lot of time prior to the wedding planning for the marriage, which is what lasts the lifetime. And so uh, it's, now that we're going to see they've matured some, it's kind of neat to see how things have shifted. And I want to warn you up front here, especially as we head into this, there's passion ahead. <laughs> this is going to get, this scene's going to get pretty intense and I will do my best to um, be clear, but ambiguous, if that makes sense, <laughs> just as we go forward. So we saw at the end of chapter six, this strange scene where the, the Shulamite said, do you want me to, do you want to see me um, dance the dance of two camps. And then it picks up in verse 1 of chapter 7. It's, this is the beloved speaking. This is the man speaking, the, uh, Solomon, looking at perhaps a dance. He says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Again, this is intense stuff. Remember, the, the Hebrews of old wouldn't let their young men read this book until the age of 30 because there is intimacy and intimate scenes in here. Now Solomon looking at his bride, um, pleasing to his sight, and now begins to speak to her and encourage her um, to, uh, or, or, or uh, speaks of the way that she looks. Like we said, it seemed perhaps like maybe even the, that... Terza was dancing for him. We saw back in verse 13 um, of chapter 6, it says, Return, O Shulamite, return, that we may look upon you. And she responds, What would you see in the Shulamite, as it were, the dance of two camps? And another translation would translate that to say the dance of Mahanahim. And Mahanahim is a specific location. And I don't know if they had a specific dance or not, but it's interesting that Mahanahem is where Jacob met Esau. And so she says the dance of two camps because in Mahanahem, that's where the two camps came together. Esau and Jacob, when they, when they got reunited, it was at Mahanahem. What also happened at Mahanahem was Jacob wrestled the angel. And you recall what happened as Jacob wrestled the angel all night long, right? The angel eventually did what? Put his hip out. So now as he's understanding her dancing in this way, the dance of Mahanaim, he's drawn to her hips. Um, and, and, and he speaks of her hips, how they are perfectly crafted. He begins at her feet. All the other times he's explained her beauty, he begins at her head and moves toward her feet. This time he's going in the reverse direction. It's still another one of those um, Near Eastern poems, the Wasf, W-A-S-F, that uh, describes uh, a, a, a love for somebody else in a physical way. Um, this time he's moving in the opposite direction. He does begin with her feet. How beautiful are your feet in sandals? Which reminded me of our feet and how important it is for us to be the um, uh, carrying the gospel. It says in Romans chapter 10, 
verse 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and he's quoting Isaiah chapter 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. He then moves up her legs to the, uh, looking at her hips, and he, he comments that it's the result of a skilled workman, uh, the work of, of the hands of a skillful workman, which reminded me of Psalm 139. Probably my favorite psalm. I love Psalm 139, but verse 13 The psalmist says to God, You formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. I like that. Marvelous are your works. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't falter or fail as He makes us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. He is the skilled workman that that put together the beloved's bride. It's good for us, practically, to praise God for making your spouse attractive to you. As we are married, we can thank God that He has knit us together and that we are attracted to one another. So verse 2, continuing this... um, what, what he, as he's just reciting or speaking what he's looking at, it says in verse 2, Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Now here's where it gets even more intense, if you would. Um, the New King James translates the word navel. Um, it's more likely referring to her womanhood and that it doesn't lack blended beverage. She is prepared uh, and ready to receive love. And then he says, your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. So I don't think Solomon was saying she was fat. (laughs) It's a heap of wheat. Um, No, but it's interesting. Why would he say that? And uh, Joe Foch, again, had an interesting idea on this, uh, which I kind of like. The, the, the nation of Israel is never referred to in the Old Testament as wheat. It's the, the cedars of Lebanon and what have you, but never referred to. The, only, the church is referred to wheat in the New Testament. But as God's love for Israel gave birth to the church... Wheat, her waist, that which gives life, her belly, will produce fruit as well. So that's what he could be speaking of, that uh, her, she is um, able to bear fruit, able to have children. Verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. He said this before in, in one of the other uh, poems. And, and what is he doing here? He's praising her femininity. Um, he's praising also her ability to nurture. As um, he's speaking of her maturity. He's, and it, the, the chapters are going to lend themselves to this. It's going to take a while to build up, but it will make sense toward the end that 
he is praising not just her physical attributes, but also her maturity and her, um, uh, like, like we said, the, the ability to produce fruit, and now even as he speaks of her breasts, the ability to nurture. Verse 4, your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. And I don't see any guys highlighting that good. We don't, we don't want to copy that one and use that one. Your nose is like the... <laughs> We've said this several times. I just want to make sure everybody's clear on it. They don't translate really well. He was speaking compliments to her. He's not trying to put her down, picking on her nose here. Anyway, he starts at the verse, your neck like an ivory tower. It was captivating. It was beautiful. To look at a tower made entirely of ivory would, would captivate your eye. It would, it would draw your attention. Her eyes like the pools of Heshbon. Pools, in, especially in that region, were a place of beauty, a place of serenity, a place of peace, a place that you would go and rest. And he's likening her eyes to that place of serenity. Must have been a well-known place, this pool by the gate of Beth-Rabim in Heshbon. I don't, I don't, we don't know a whole lot about it. We know that there were pools around the gates there in Heshbon. Um, they're not sure which gate, as they've dug up archaeologically, they're not sure which gate was Beth-Rabim. It would have been the one that faced that city, but they're not sure where that city is. And so they, I don't know if these pools were very deep, and maybe that's what he's saying. He could look into her eyes all day long, but he was captivated. They were beautiful, and they brought peace to his spirit. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue, and you got a nose like a B-52. <laughs> right? <laughs> no. How about this? And I, I like this. The tower that Solomon built, the Tower of Lebanon, which looked toward Damascus, Damascus was a perennial enemy of Israel. And so he built a tower in order to continue to keep eyes on that which was an enemy of his. So what he's saying here, he's not probably not even commenting on the physical appearance of her nose, although there's a possibility that it would be more a reference to the, the color of her nose than the shape of her nose. But what I think he's referring to here is that she has grown in maturity and she now has an ability to discern properly. That she's, she's able to sniff out the enemy, if you would. You know, that, that she has an understanding of who her friends are and who aren't hers. She's, she's matured in the matter of discernment. She, she knows that, like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus, she knows who to stay away from and who to draw near. And then he finishes with her head. Your head, verse 5, crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. She's not punk here. She's you know, dyed her hair purple. But purple was the color of royalty, right? She, um, she was, he was praising her royalty. She, he was praising the way she conducted herself, the way she held herself dignantly. 
And, 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 and he was celebrating that. The whole poem is lifting the accolades of how she has matured over the years. And in her maturity, she's more beautiful than at the first. And that's what true love does. As you grow in love with your, your spouse, as you grow more and more in love with your spouse, you come to realize over the years that you end up, you both fade physically. That's just the matter of it. And perhaps those things that attracted you in a physical way before, now you find a greater, a deeper beauty in character and in the way your spouse conducts him or herself. You find a deeper respect for the way they use their words or the way they carry themselves. And the love that you have later on in years is often, especially as it's God-centered, more beautiful than at the first. He sums everything up in verse 6. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. What a beautiful sentence. What a beautiful summary. He's overwhelmed by her and her feminine ways. That word delights there is referring to her romantic ability. That he is enticed by her and the way that she loves him in a physical way. How pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. And then it gets even more intense. Verse 7, The stature of yours, or this stature of yours, is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. So he's speaking now of her whole frame. He's regarding her from top to bottom, and and he speaks of uh, the entire thing and likens it to a palm tree. But speaking of her maturity, we could say, She's well-rooted. That's what palm trees are. Palm trees are in the desert, and they have to find water. Palm trees are well-rooted. There's a, I think it's like an Arabian proverb or something like that. Speaking of palm trees, they have uh, their head in the fire and their roots in the river. And that's a palm tree, right? The head in the fire, the top of the palm tree is always out in the sun. It's always blazing. It's always hot where the head of the palm tree is. But the roots have to go deep in order to find water. And so they find their, the roots are in the river. They find that they are well-rooted, speaking of her maturity. And no matter what the situation, if your head's in the fire, if you're properly rooted, Psalm 1, all that you do will prosper. Verse 8, I said, I will go up to the palm tree. This is the beloved speaking now of his bride. I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of vine, uh, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. He's making his intentions well known here. What he plans to do with his bride. Early on in the book of Song of Solomon, the, the brothers of the bride speak something about that they would catch the little foxes uh, to keep the garden pure. That we, and, and the way we liken that is as, as we have a marriage, we have to tend to our garden, we have to care for it, and we have to keep out the little foxes, those things that would ruin the garden, those things that would ruin our relationship with our spouse. We have to make sure those things stay at bay. And I would say a a little fox that we all need to be aware of is the, the one of miscommunication. Solomon here plainly makes his intention 
known. There is no guessing about what he is saying. He's being plain, hear this, men. He's being plain without being vulgar about what he would like to do with his bride. And then she responds, the Shulamite, the wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. Her desire is to be pleasing to him. She wants to receive the love that he wants to give her. She's living out that 1 Corinthians 7. We read a couple times as we've gone through the book of Song of Solomon that our body is not our own. And in in a marriage, we are to be given to one another. She's living it out before it's even written because she desires to please him. And then verse 10, I am my beloved, she said, and his desire is toward me. I love these verses. This is the third time we've seen something like this throughout the song. And just how her mind is brought to the idea that she is surrendered to him and she, uh, there is an intimate relationship unlike any other that he has or that she has on the face of the earth. I am my beloved's. The caveat is she said, in this time that she says it, is that she recognizes the love and the desire that he has toward her. His desire is toward me. How about that as we think of Christ? His desire is toward his bride, us, you and I. Christ loves us so much so that he would be willing to give his life that I might come into a relationship with the Father. How glorious a thought that is. How deep a love that the Father has for us that He would, as we sang, that He would make a wretch His treasure. And and my heart gets caught up in what the, the Shulamite says here. I am my beloved's. I belong to God. He has bought me with a price. I'm not my own. And His desire is toward me. He... He has a passion toward me that he has, uh, is unrelenting in that he desires uh, an intimate relationship with you and I, not in a sexual way by any means. That would be making that relationship vulgar. In a deep way. How glorious a thought that he loves us. It says in verse 11, Come, my beloved, let's, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. This is now her responding to his poem, and, and she is ready to give her love to him. What's interesting is she's not letting him out of his, her sight. She had made that mistake before in the song. In the in the song, she she didn't answer the door when he came knocking, and by the time she was roused to get out of bed, he had departed, and she had to chase after him. Now, as her love for him has matured, she's not letting him out of her sight. Hey, right? Let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the village. Let's us go to the vineyard and see if the vine has budded, and there. I will give you my love. What is she doing? In a practical way, she's planning a a romantic encounter getaway. 
This is a, an opportunity for them to sneak away for a weekend, a time away. And I have to encourage all of the married couples here. That is critical for a healthy marriage. We have to plan and be intentional about stepping away from our day-to-day responsibilities, about stepping away from our kids and our jobs and our families and cultivating an intimate relationship with the one that God has united with us. Spend time cultivating your love for one another. Married couple. People try to... um, tell you how often that should be. And the truth of the matter is it works out differently for different couples. The standard that I've heard in the past is that you would spend 15 minutes every day where it's just the two of you. Uh, You you put the kids to bed, you, you you send them outside and you sit on the couch together, you talk about how your day went before you, you close all your screens, you, you turn off the phone, you set the phone aside and you Um, spend 15 minutes talking to one another, listening to one another. 15 minutes a day, one night a week that you would go out on a date, Um, you know, that that it would just be the two of you, hire a babysitter if you need to. Um, It doesn't have to be that you go out. It could be if, if, if budget is tight, then you just go outside, go to the backyard and and. Go to the driveway and set up a couple lawn chairs and tell the kids, put a movie on for the kids or whatever. One, 15 minutes a day, one night a week, one weekend a quarter. Um, so three to four, time, four times a year, you're getting away for the weekend where it's just the two of you. And then one week a year where you, you, you spend an entire week, just the two of you. That's hard to do. I'll, I'll be honest with you. We, Michelle and I have tried that. And it's in our our schedule with how busy we are and how busy our family is, it's impossible to carve out that much time, to be honest. And so we might get a date once a month. We might get away for a weekend once or twice a year. Um, When we went to California for the pastor's conference in June, that was the first time in seven years that we had taken a week off together, just the two of us. And, and gone and done something, other than the time we went to Africa. But then, while we were in Africa, we were, had kindu, and so we weren't entirely by ourselves. We had one of our kids with us, and so, in fact, we were getting to know him. So it, it wasn't a romantic encounter by any means. We were focused on the task at hand. So my point being, it's not write down these notes and keep this schedule, my point being, be intentional about cultivating time for one another. Because our adversary will intentionally keep you busy in order to wreak havoc on your marriage. I heard somebody say at the men's conference I taught at last year, busy means, the, the letters, B-U-S-Y, busy. Being under Satan's yoke. That's what busy is, and very often it is. And we need to make sure that we have margin in our lives in order to spend time cultivating our relationship with our spouse. Okay. Verse 13. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our gates 
are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. She's unfolding this plan that she's taking him away for a time, and and she has a, a romantic encounter planned. And so she says the mandrakes give off their fragrance. Mandrakes in those days were believed to be an aphrodisiac. Um, and so he, she's speaking of an encounter here. Um, and then it says, you know, the, uh, our gates, uh, the, and at our gates are pleasant fruits. We, we have an opportunity in, to imbibe in love. All manner, new and old. I think together it's wise that you would celebrate old memories together and also be busy making new memories, that you would cultivate new memories. And then verse 1 of chapter 8 is going to sideswipe us here. This is a weird verse. Look, look at it. Oh, that you were like my brother. What? Who nursed at my mother's breast. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. If you were my brother, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. What is going on here? Right? All of a sudden it gets weird. Well, having some understanding of the culture in those days, perhaps will shed a little bit of light on what she's saying. This is not a strange verse with the proper context. What is she saying? Well, it's interesting. In their culture, public affection between a husband and wife was not permitted. But public affection between a brother and a sister was. You could, as a brother and sister, you could, there, they, there was a greater emphasis on family love, and not, again, not in a sexual way here, but in, in, the, in the depth of the Philadelphia, the, the, the brotherly love that you would have for one another, that per, the culture permitted you to hold hands with your brother as you walked about the streets, or to kiss one another with a, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss. That was permitted, but public affection between a husband and a wife was not. So with that in mind, read the verse again, and it makes more sense. Oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you and I would not be despised. She, her passion is so great for, for this, her love, this, for Solomon. She wants to display it in public, but she knows she's not permitted to. If he were her brother, she would be permitted to. So she's saying, I don't like this rule. I wish that we could declare our love for one another to all the world. Sounds like the makings of a movie. So verse 2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. Okay. We saw Solomon making his intentions well-known. Now she is making her intentions well-known. Again, communication, especially communication when when it's regarded to intimacy between a husband and a wife, is critical. Don't guess. Be plain in your your talk. So verse 3, to the daughters of Jerusalem, now now she says to him, to the daughters of Jerusalem. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. This is an embrace of romance. We've seen this early on in the psalm. The only way to have your left hand under somebody's head is if you're laying down. 
It's an embrace of romance. And so she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. We've heard this before too, haven't we? This is now the third time we've heard this verse. But now from somebody who has matured, a, a lover that's experienced things, and now she's looking at the daughters of Jerusalem and says, hold off until the right time. The best we can do is wait until the proper time to awaken love. Hear this, especially you that are not yet married. The less baggage we bring into a marriage, the better off we both will be. Baggage attaches itself to us through improper use of the sexual relationship, through fornication or pornography, through lust or sexual abuse, through promiscuity. Sex is designed to be glorious and free between a husband and wife, baggage-free. And it will not be completely free if we're bringing that baggage into the bedroom. My encouragement to you is if you're carrying baggage in your marriage today, have a heart-to-heart with your spouse. Open up. Build one another up. Let your conversation be a safe place. Help one another to let go of the past. Recognize the forgiveness that is available through the cross for your spouse. And let go of the bags. Verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you from under the apple tree, There your mother brought you forth. There she bore you. Uh, There she who bore you brought you forth. Who is this? Uh, The the line I want to glean from this this verse is the idea that she is leaning upon her beloved. They're, They're close together, and in fact, she is leaning on him, and she's completely dependent upon him. And as we grow and as we mature in Christ, it's very interesting how how it's a dichotomy from the way we raise our kids, right? We, 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 we birth a child and they are entirely and completely dependent upon us to provide everything that they need for him, them, from feeding them to helping them to sleep to changing their diapers to teaching them to speak to teaching them to walk for the first two years. They're almost entirely dependent upon us. And then we spend from age two until age 18, growing them up and teaching them and, and, and showing them how to be what? Independent, right? That's the goal of us raising children is we hope that one day we can and kick them out the door so that, and they'll survive, that they will be independent and able to survive on their own without the day-to-day relationship with us. That's the goal. But in the Christian life, as we grow up in Him, we don't become more and more independent of Him. We become more and more dependent on Him. We we recognize as we mature in the Lord just how much He means to us. How much we are in need of Him. How deep our dependence upon Him becomes. Our prayer life increases as we mature in the Lord. Our, our declaration of worship and praise and adoration increases as we mature in the Lord to the point that 
I've heard toward the end of life that, that many mature Christians, those that have been walking with the Lord for 40 and 50 and 60 years, all they do is they pour over the Psalms over and over and over again because the Psalms so adequately ex- express our need for God. I've been listening to lectures to my students by Charles Spurgeon. Um, it was a, a, a book that he wrote based on, a, a, he started a college for pastors. And one of the things he suggested is that as we grow in dependence upon the Lord, our prayer, the, how often we pray will increase to the point that we may be praying every quarter hour. I, there, there's still hours and parts of days that I miss and I'm not communicating with God. To, to be in prayer with Him every 15 minutes, imagine. But as we grow and mature, our dependence becomes greater upon Him. We lean more on our beloved. So now the Shulamite says to her, Solomon in verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. The seal indicated a permanence. She wants him to make her a permanent fixture in his life, a permanent seal upon her, his heart that she, she would always be thought of by him. It's, in our day and age, it's like a tattoo. It's, it's pretty well permanent unless you want to pay a whole lot of money, to, a whole lot of pain to get it removed. Our Holy Spirit, as we talked about on Sunday, is our seal. And that is permanent. She wants him to make sure that, or she wants to make sure that his love for her is forever. And then she gives some reasons. It says, and this is why she wants to make, she's looking for that security of being sealed upon his heart and arm for these reasons. It says, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give all for love, or, or give love, give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. So she wants him to seal her upon his heart for these four reasons. First, love is as strong as death. Love is irresistible, sort of like death is irresistible. He, You can't refuse when death comes knocking at your door. She says jealousy is as cruel as the grave. And that word cruel really means hard. Jealousy is hard as the grave. If he is rightly jealous for her as he has sealed her on his heart, his heart's not going to wander. That's the proper form of jealousy as God is jealous for us. Third, many waters can't quench love, she says in verse 7. In other words, there's an endurance to true love. It doesn't matter what comes against it. And then the fourth idea is that love can't be bought. True love is priceless, right? If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. I was thinking about this, and I don't know the number, but I wondered, I started working when I was 16. I made $4.25 an hour. Uh, minimum wage back then, you know, all through high school, and then um, worked my way up. I've had many, many, many different jobs. I worked for a pizza place for three hours once. I worked for U-Haul for eight hours once, 
And, uh, you know, I've, I've tried many different things. I spent 20 years in the garage door industry. I wonder over my career from the age of 16 until now, how much money I've made. You ever thought about that? I, I don't know what the number is. Have I made $500,000, let's say? Let's say I have. Let's say I've made $500,000 in my career. I don't know how close that is or how accurate it is, but what, it doesn't matter because I don't have any of it now. <laughs> Right? All of it went to food and shoes and stuff. But I wouldn't trade everything I have now for a $500,000 check. I wouldn't, wouldn't give up my wife or my kids and that love that we have. I wouldn't give up that, that, those deep relationships that I've had because I've been able to care for my family, right? And I don't think you would either. And that's the idea. Love is priceless. It can't be bought. And that's, that, that puts money into a proper perspective. Money just becomes a tool enabling us to care for those whom we love. So now in verse 8, finishing up the book, the Shulamite's brothers are going to speak. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for the day that she's betrothed is the idea. And this is interesting because now they're concerned about this, this younger sister, it appears. And that's the idea of mature love. Mature love is concerned for others. Mature love is others-centered. And in this case, their concern is for someone young, not yet able to produce fruit. That would be the idea, that she is prepubescent. And so she's unable yet to produce fruit. As we walk with Christ, as we mature with Christ, that should be our heart as well, that you and I would have a burden for somebody that is not yet producing fruit in the Lord. That we would be concerned for our less mature brothers and sisters, bringing them along, discipling them in the ways that they should go, teaching them to observe all that Christ had commanded us, right? That we would have a burden for the new believer, that's their heart, is their others-centered, they're concerned. And the response is in verse 9, if she is a wall, we will build, speaking of this young person, if she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. If she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. What I like about their heart as they say this is, no matter how the Lord uses this young believer, a wall or a door are examples of how, to, how that she might be used, what they're saying is we want to come alongside to strengthen her, to, to build up her walk. If she's a wall, what is a wall? What does a wall do? A wall provides protection. A wall provides security. We have, those, we have people that are that for us. And if she were to be a wall, somebody that would protect and provide security, then the way that they're going to come alongside is they're going to build a battlement of silver. Silver was a, you know, an indication of strength, a metal that would, would be strong. It was also the indi- uh, uh, silver represents redemption. And so they're, they're going to make sure that she is redeemed. If she were to be a door, what, what, what is a door? A door is a a gate for others to enter, a way that people might come closer to the Lord. And they are going to come alongside her if she's a door and enclose her with cedar. What does that mean? It means that they're going to protect her. Cedar 
Cedar is an incorruptible wood. They uh, heard a story that they were pulling up, um, uh, digging out a, um, oh shoot, I forget what it was. An archaeological site, uh, 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 a, a king's home or, or something like that. And they found in the dig cedar that had been laid as part of the walls of a particular room that was probably uh, several thousand years old that had yet to rot. It was, it, uh, the wood is, was perfectly preserved, and that's the idea is that cedar is an incorruptible wood, and they're going to enclose her, the door, with boards of cedar. We're going to protect her that she would be incorrupted. The Shulamite responds in verse 10, I am a wall and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. She's saying, I am mature. That would be the breast reference. I am mature. And that she has found peace in his eyes. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. And it is in his eyes, the Lord's eyes, that we find our peace as well. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal-Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. And then she says to Solomon, My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand. And those who tend its fruit, two hundred. Beloved, the beloved response, Solomon's response, You who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. I like that. There's a longing to hear His voice as we long to hear our Lord's voice as well. And then the the book closes with the Shulamite saying, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Make haste. She's saying quickly, come quickly. She desires His embrace and and, and she desires to be with him. But what I like is, as she closes the book by saying, come quickly, that reminds me of John in Revelation, who says, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So the book, as we ponder it, as we consider it, what I hope it would urge you to do, what I hope you would glean from this is that we would move from being a selfless lover, or sorry, move from being a selfish lover lover to being a selfless lover. Let me say that again. We, that we, as we mature, we would move from being selfish to selfless, placing others' needs, our spouse's needs particularly, in front of our own. And as always, Christ is our example. Speaking of Christ's love for us, Paul says to the Philippians of Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That is love. Amen?
Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. We're just going to continue on. The next book as in the progression of the Old Testament is the book of Isaiah. So we'll begin the book of Isaiah next Wednesday. Good study. 66 chapters, I believe. It's going to take us a week or two to get through that. <laughs> but we'll probably take it at a pretty good clip, maybe doing three or four chapters a night. So we'll move quickly. God, thank you and praise you for this book. And I know it's made me uncomfortable in some ways as I've, had, as I've taught it. Um, and I'm sure it's made all of us uncomfortable in ways because we need to grow. I pray, Father, and, and for those that um, don't have a direct application because they don't have a spouse, I pray they would take the intimacy of their relationship with you to a new level that they would deepen their relationship and their dependency upon you. I don't pray that just for the single people in this room. I pray that for all of us, Lord. That our love would move from selfishness to selflessness. That we would take Christ as our example who humbled Himself to the point of death. Jesus, Jesus, You commanded us through Paul in Ephesians that husbands, we are to do the same. That we are to die for our spouse. Help us, Father, to place others' needs in front of our own. Help us to be attentive to the needs of our family, Lord. Help us to set our eyes or fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray that you go before us tonight, guide us throughout the rest of the week. I pray for um, the the weekend ahead, Lord, that it would be um, just a great time of fellowship. Lord, we love all that you're doing. We're grateful for the opportunity to serve you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.